హలో అండ్ వెల్కమ్ టు ఇంటర్ప్రెటింగ్ ఇండియా ఐఎమ్ శ్రీనాథ్ రాఘవన్ అండ్ దిస్ ఇస్ అ పాడ్కాస్ట్ ప్రెజెంటెడ్ బై కానిగి ఇండియా ఎవ్రీ టూ వీక్స్ వీ బ్రింగ్ టు యూ వాయిసెస్ ఫ్రమ్ ఇండియా అండ్ అరౌండ్ ద వర్ల్డ్ యాజ్ వీ అన్పాక్ ద రోల్ ఆఫ్ టెక్నాలజీ ది ఎకానమీ అండ్ ఫారెన్ పాలసీ ఇన్ షేపింగ్ ఇండియాస్ రిలేషన్షిప్ విత్ ద వర్ల్డ్ In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. The recent border clashes between Indian and Chinese forces have turned the spotlight on India's defense preparedness and capabilities. In the wake of the standoff, the government has announced a slew of new acquisitions and policies aimed at accelerating the pace of modernization of India's armed forces. In effect, the government has been forced to loosen its purse strings for defense despite the economic shock delivered by the pandemic. The government's ability to undertake a thorough overhaul of the defense sector, however, remains in question. Several analysts and observers have noted that the government's new policies do not go deep enough that they leave untouched existing structural problems in India's defense institutions. They also note that as the Sino-Indian border conflict winds down, the urgency of defense reforms is likely to fade, a tendency that has been observed in the past as well. Besides, the government's overall response to China's actions during this standoff suggests that its priority is domestic opinion. In this episode of Interpreting India, we take a step back from these immediate discussions and consider the anatomy of India's high defense structures. and why certain problematic features have persisted so long at the same time there have been some significant reforms over the past year and it is important to take stock of these and consider how well placed the government is to tackle the challenges that lie ahead joining us today to discuss these questions is professor anit mukherjee anit is the author of the acclaimed book the absent dialogue politicians bureaucrats and the military in india published by Oxford University Press in late 2019. Anit is Assistant Professor and Deputy Head of Graduate Studies at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies of the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He's also a non-resident fellow at Brookings India and a non-resident visiting scholar at the Center for the Advanced Study of India at the University of Pennsylvania. Before his academic career, Anit has also served in the Indian Army where he was a major. Anit's articles have been published in numerous prestigious publications including the Journal of Strategic Studies, the New York Times, the Rusi Journal, the India Review and the Indian Express. Anit, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much Srinath. Great to be here. Great to have you. I want to begin by asking you to talk a little bit about some of the more foundational issues as far as India's defense preparedness are concerned. you know we've seen how in the wake of the recent crisis uh, with PLA along the line of action control you know the government seems to have pressed the pedal so to speak on defense acquisitions you know, at least in india the televisions have been showing us all these images of the rafals kind of taking off for india and so on but clearly the fact that we are doing these kinds of off the shelf government to government purchases suggests that many of the systems and processes that we have tried to put in place for perhaps the last 15 years are clearly not working as well as they should what is the problem oh boy where do i start um the book i just wrote examined different aspects of india's defense policy 
And I think there are problems at um, multiple levels. And so there isn't one single factor of what are the problems. For instance, there's considerable dissonance and at times tension between the civilians and the military. The civilians believe that the military is a demanding bottomless pit, always asking for money. Whereas the military perceives the civilians as uninformed and not properly responsive to their needs. So there are problems of multiple stakeholders and multiple perceptions and perspectives on this issue, which is pulling in different directions. And frankly, an inability to properly think through what the Indian military needs, when does it need it by, and what it needs to do to achieve its objectives. If you were to ask me, um, if you were to force me to answer about one particular issue that we are dealing with now, in the COVID era, the most pressing problem is, simply put, the lack of money. Well, I mean, the question of finances is something that is important, and I'll come to it in a little while. But it seems that even when the government has been wanting to spend money and wanting to acquire certain kinds of big platforms, which are essential for defense organization, you know, we seem to be running into all kinds of various types of procedural and institutional difficulties, so to speak. Right? I mean, for instance, you know, uh, the entire uh, process by which the medium-range combat aircraft, MMRCAD, was supposed to have been concluded. It ran for so long, but eventually ended up in scrap and us going for a sort of a second-order sub-optimization. So uh, why do you think the, where do you think the problem lies as far as the institutional mechanisms for procurement? Uh, so I think to a significant extent, it lies with too many stakeholders in the system and the mind-boggling complexity of dealing with all of them. Perhaps the best indicator of how complex this is, is the number of reform committees which have been established to deal with one or more aspects pertaining to procurement. As I explain in my book, since the defense reforms process, which began in 2001, there have been more than 10 committees, as far as I know, one every two years, which has been created to, to examine some aspect pertaining to procurement, acquisition, or the defense production process. Sadly, not all of the reports of this committee are in the public domain, which is a separate issue altogether. But from what we know about them, um, they all end up arguing that there is a lack of accountability because of numerous actors with differing interests. Moreover, if we were to take a step back, it is clear that there are problems in the services, in the defense industry both uh, in the public and the private sector and in different departments within the Ministry of Defense. Um, I think one of the more interesting ideas came in 2018 from what is known as the Pritam Singh Committee, which according to some of the India reports, it recommended establishing a defense acquisition organization consisting of different actors with the overall objective to push through the necessary projects through the system. However, as yet, it is unclear what actions were taken by the MOD on the report of this committee. And wasn't the National Security Advisor also bought into the picture to head one of these groups which is going to be looking at acquisitions and so on? I think this was a very interesting development. And the government at that time was perhaps kind of responding to a lot of criticism it had got from the strategic community about the state of defense reforms. 
However, sadly, there is very little which is known about what the DPC actually ended up doing. Is it still functioning or has its mandate been taken over by the CDS? How many times did it meet and what did it achieve? I think these are all worthwhile questions that need to be asked about the DPC. As you well know, at that point of time, um, when they announced the creation of the DPC, there was a lot of commentary and speculation in the media that this would be the answer to a lot of the problems that um, ails the procurement process. Um, but frankly, based on what is publicly available, we simply don't know how did the DPC function? Um, has it been able to overcome its it, the obstacles, or was it just a fig leaf to deflect attention? Sure. One of the problems with the overall sort of attempt at military modernization, which in some ways underlies also the, you know, at least in terms of kicking off the acquisitions process, uh, is a certain lack of what you might think of as political guidance. So, for instance, the main instrument or the main sort of text with which the armed forces operate is the Daksha Mantri or the Defense Minister's Operational Directive, which is a strange document because it actually originates from the military itself and eventually goes through a system and is only more or less approved or signed off by the Defense Minister. And in turn then becomes the main guidance for how the military thinks about its short, medium and longer term requirements for military modification. Um, so, I mean, the absence of a clear strategic guidance on what is it that the military is supposed to prepare for what kinds of capabilities we need to acquire by what timelines seems to be a problem in its own right. I would completely agree with that. I think is the lack of political guidance the problem in its own right. Makes no sense for a military to frame its own operational planning parameters, which in turn shapes capability development. I think we need more informed and engaged civilian involvement, which comes together with the military, like the leadership to properly think through the aims, expectations, and anticipated roles and the missions of the Indian military in the short, medium, and long-term horizons. Undertaking such an effort may require a serious brainstorming effort, which should perhaps involve the entire senior kind of leadership at the combined commanders, I will perhaps in conjunction with political and bureaucratic leaders. For some in the military, what we need is a national security strategy. But I think the main contours of of our um, of the challenges we are going to face in the coming decades are known to all. Uh, we should move away from the blame game of you know uh, who is in charge of or the blame game that usually emerges from saying that, look, we don't have a national security strategy and seriously focus on what we need to do to prepare for these challenges. And I think the only way to think about doing that is when politicians, bureaucrats, and the military come together um, and think about the challenges that we should prepare the military for in the next, whatever, three years, five years, seven years, 10 years. Um, and that's the most I think you can look forward. Right. And the other sort of challenge which the acquisition process seems to face, which isn't quite evident just from the organizational charts, but seems to influence the process, is a certain kind of risk averseness on the part both of the officials who are involved in this process, as well as the ministers who are signing off, uh, you know, kind of big purchases and so on. 
especially things which are done through tenders and not through the government to government. And is there any way that you think uh, this particular aspect of it can be addressed? Because this is a larger problem, right? I mean, the, in a sense that because of certain kinds of retrospective action taken against policy decisions in other domains, they seem to have been a knock-on effect as far as defense acquisition. What you have just spoken of is a big problem in the system. Um, I would completely agree with that. As you well know, since the 1987 Beaufort scandals, real and alleged instances of corruption in the defense deals is a political and a sad uh, like reality. In my interviews with officials, um, whether they are military or bureaucrats, a lot of them have admitted to a climate of fear which permeates all of them who have to engage in contract negotiations for defense items. It does not help matters when politicians, and this is across political parties, have used investigative agencies to, to seemingly launch a witch hunt, right? I mean, they want to score a political brownie point, but unfortunately, officials are caught in the crossfires. So um, I was told more than once that officials are afraid to sign on to papers because they're afraid that at some point of time, even after they leave the service, they will be called upon for an inquiry. This attitude, while it is politically expedient, has hurt our overall defense preparedness. And so perhaps indicative of this problem, it is not surprising that over the last two decades, most of our big ticket acquisitions have been at a government to government level and not on a tender basis. So I think that is because of afraid of corruption allegations and investigative inquiries, the big ticket acquisition we have undertaken is more has been at a state to state level and at a government to government level. The question of acquisitions, of course, has become all the more urgent, primarily because our own attempts and ability to produce defense equipment, especially sort of big platforms in India, uh, you know, have been steadily sort of not delivered. Right? Um, government, of course, public sector dominates this entire area of defense production. You have your factory boards, have the defense public sector undertake. But despite, again, multiple committees are looking at how to reform this system, there has been very little that has actually happened by way of reforms that have delivered. Right? I mean, what we see is some periodic attempts to tinker with organization but in terms of, uh, you know, say, for instance, there has been repeated calls to say we need to have more private players uh, and more competition within the system. But none of that has really come to pass. Uh, and and what, what do you think are the sort of, you know, real problems in play there? Well, that's a great question, Srinath. What are the problems? I think, so uh, firstly, when we look at defense procurement and um, the acquisition Think the go-to source for me is the IDSA Defense Economic Center. In case you haven't read it, I'm sure you are acquainted with it, but to all um, the others who are interested in the subject, there has been yeoman work being done at IDSA by the Defense Acquisition Center over there. So people like Amit Kaushish, Lakshman Behera, Group Captain Kaushal, they've all been arguing about the about the problems in defense procurement and acquisition. So that's a great source to start off with. To, to actually ask me what are the problems, I think there's so many problems on so many different levels. There are problems in the services, from the way they they frame their GSQRs. GSQR stands for um, the 
qualitative like the requirements. There are problems in the Ministry of Defense from the organization that processes the requests that come from the services. There are problems even in defense industry. Um, but if you were to ask me what the fundamental problem is, I think one of the biggest problems we are facing is simply put lack of money, uh, which is we are, we, we are not allocating enough resources in part because a lot of it is eaten up by manpower. Now, too, uh, we have seen that the gaps have been sort of raised and moved on, but still there have been manufacturers, um, especially outside of India, to form joint ventures with Indian partners and actually set up manufacturing um, you know, entities in India itself. So I'm just wondering, do you think the latest kind of move to push the FDI cap up to 75% uh, is, is likely to spur these efforts on or are we missing some other pieces of the puzzle? I think we are still missing some pieces of the puzzle. But first, I should start by saying I welcome the announcement regarding the increase in the FDI in the defense sector. However, while the announcement has been made by the finance minister, but to the best of my information, I don't think the government has yet issued precise orders specifying uh, the exact contours of this policy. Uh, so we are still awaiting the details of uh, what this means for the industry. More importantly, I think perhaps this intention to allow, to allow FDI in the defense secretary in the defense industry, sorry, defense secretary, is in tension with the newly announced emphasis on self-reliance. Uh, so for instance, if foreign firms are unclear uh, when they establish an industry on Indian soil under this FDI route, would they be would they be considered an Indian entity or a foreign entity, right? If they're unclear about this, uh, then I think, so if they are considered a a foreign entity, then they would not qualify for the for the self-reliance uh, initiative, which was just declared. Uh, so it would sort of rule them out of consideration for selling to the Indian armed forces. Uh, that would make it probably impossible to attract FBI. As such, as the system is set up now, I don't think there's enough clarity on this FBI issue. Uh some people have pointed out that you know there may be another sort of aspect to this as well, which is to say that if you're thinking about you know foreign defense manufacturers, players, so to speak, getting into joint ventures and actually investing in India, perhaps they're looking for something more than just assurance of orders from the Indian military itself, uh, and that you know perhaps India will have to relax its export control laws as far as military equipment is concerned and allow these players to actually sell to third countries as well. Um, I think that's a great point. Uh, but first, let's begin with giving this government credit for emphasizing defense exports, which marks a significant departure from the past. They have encouraged both the private and the public defense entities to go to other countries and explore by attending the defense exhibitions and shows. Now, this is, um, I have not seen this before. So um, I think this is a very positive step taken uh, by the government. At the same time, I'm not convinced that foreign defense companies would find India as an attractive, lucrative base for establishing an industry for export to third countries. Uh, primarily because if I'm a foreign defense industry, I will make a decision to invest in India based on the logic of export, expecting a return on my investment. Um, and um, 
I think the best assurance they will have is if the if the Indian armed forces themselves go out and give an assurance that they will buy the equipment. Um, so unless and um, until the Indian military promises to buy these products, um, I think this notion that foreign companies would come into India to to export to third uh, kind of countries uh, will not bear itself out. Yes, of course. I mean, that remains the primary uh, the other interesting reform that this government has spotted in uh, is, of course, in the name of what we have which is the institution. And there, again, to give the government credit, uh, they have created the Office of the People Defense Act, uh, something which has been, I think, debated for 30 years before it has taken institutional shape and form. And they have also created a Department of Military affairs within the Ministry of Defense as a way of thinking about integrating the Ministry of Defense which, with the service headquarters, typically, uh, as you point out in your book. Now, I understand this has only been a few months, but how do you read these reforms and the way that they are actually playing out? I think it's fantastic that this government has finally created the office of the CDS. Um, I think it's a long-standing demand since 1960s onwards, um, and this expectation has always been there. So the fact that the PM entered there um, in August, uh, kind of, uh, like a year ago, and created a CDS was a welcome development. I also think it's interesting that at the same time, they created the office of DMA, right? The Department of the Military Affairs. I was actually pretty gobsmacked by the announcement of the DMA, since in all these years of examining um, defense reforms, I had never seen this idea being articulated even once by an expert, by um, a professional, an academic, a service officer. I had never come across this idea for a DMA. So I was like, uh, how did this come about? So I was intrigued as to where did this idea come from? After speaking to a few people close to it, it was explained to me that they needed to create a DMA and anoint the CDS as the um, as its head, as the government of India works through the secretary system. And the only way they could have the CDS enjoy the powers that of make him equivalent to a secretary was to create a department of military affairs. I think it's in, it's interesting in a, as of itself, and I think indicative of the state of Indian bureaucracy, that for a seemingly mundane administrative purpose, this newfangled idea uh, was established. But to go back to your question, I think there's a lack of um, a lack of clarity on the precise powers of the CDS DMA and its exact configuration with the Ministry of Defense um, and with other bureaucracies, with the services headquarters, with the Department of Defense, like the production, for instance. Perhaps one, if I was to be unkind, I would say that this is indicative of a lack of back end staff work in trying to figure out what exactly do they want. Um, and so um, I would say, yes, it's still too early to tell. Give it some more time, and I would have a firmer opinion on whether it is working or not, hopefully by the same time next year. And in terms of the CDS's relationship with the service chiefs, I mean, uh, is it working out as it was envisioned? Is the CDS uh, first among equals, or is he turning out to be a super sort of service chief of some kind? That's a good question, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that. 
But I should begin by pointing out that um, when I was looking at the Mountbatten papers in the UK, uh, who, as you well know, was Britain's like second uh, chief of defense staff, I saw papers that indicated the tension that he was facing in dealing with his service chiefs. So because there was a lack of clarity about the exact powers of the CDS vis-a-vis the other three chiefs, there was a lot of tension um, that he was facing. I would imagine that that a similar process is playing itself out um, even as we speak in the Indian system, that since we don't have a playbook on which to go by, since we don't know the exact powers of the CDS vis-a-vis the other three service chiefs, that there is some jockeying for power going on, uh, which is understandable, which is natural also to a certain extent. Uh, but at the same point of time, I would think that at some point of time, the political, like the leadership needs to come in and take a look at it again to give their views on what it what the architecture or the structure should look like. They should hear out the arguments from the service chiefs and the CDS and the DMA office, and then arbitrate between them, and then give clear guidance and directions on what is it that they want, they think is the best way forward. Um, again, I think it could be an endless conversation if you leave it to the services, because there could be an endless uh, back and forth in between this in between the CDS and the service chiefs. And that's why I think it is important for civilians to come in at at, at a certain kind of point of time to examine this issue again. And one of the things that you know was announced as part of the things which were taken in this sort of set of reforms was that India will move Indian Armed Forces will move the system integrated theater commands, which is to say that the various commands of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, which operate uh, in different theaters, but typically out of different locations, uh, should now be integrated into various kinds of uh, theater commands. But clearly, this is again a proposal uh, for which there is resistance from certain quarters of the armed forces. There is a certain lack of clarity about saying once the theater commands are integrated, then what exactly is the operational role of the service chiefs? Uh, will the theater commands directly report to the CDS as they do perhaps in the American model where the German joint chiefs are the person directly kind of takes control of all the commanders in chief of these uh, commands. So this seems to be another very important uh, reform which has been announced, but whose contours are unclear. What is your uh, analysis of how do you see this particular uh, piece of the reform jigsaw puzzle? I would unequivocally welcome the creation of the joint theater commands and give complete credit to the government, as I think it's a great step forward, as it would, by definition, enhance both effectiveness and efficiency. Um, I think it is also to be welcomed that the government gave this proposal a three-year time uh, gap, right? Uh, and said that in three years' time, it would be implemented. Uh, but the only concern I have is I think we need to publicly debate what model of a theater command we wish to adopt. Um, and perhaps more importantly, we need the civilians to sign off on this. Um, I'll tell you why I say this. Um, 
So in about 2014 or so, I took an interest in trying to look at the Andaman Nicobar Joint Command of uh, why was it established, how was it established, and did it meet the objective of the architects of this reform measure? So I I went and met Arun Singh. I interviewed other officers and officials who were involved with creating this joint theater command. And then I went and I interviewed officers who served in the theater command. And the, and I found out, depressingly enough, that the idea of the architects of this command was that if you create a joint theater command in, in the Andaman and the Nicobar Islands, it would be a replica, it would be an experiment for replication all across the Indian military. But as I found out that subsequently the three services undermined this reform initiative because they didn't want the joint command to succeed. So they so they undermined it by uh, by sort of denying assets to the Andaman and the Nicobar command and by not posting its best officers to that command. And so it was seen as a, as a career backwaters. And so the point I want to make is it's not enough for the civilians to announce a reform initiative and, and to leave the implementation to the services. I think it is important for the civilians to come in and quickly tell them that, look, we have asked you to do this. We want to see its implementation through. Um, and it should ensure that that bureaucracy, that is service officers, are, uh, that they do not undermine it. Um, and so, yes, uh, while I welcome the announcement uh, of the theater command, I also think it is extremely important that the civilians do not take their eyes off the ball. And, uh, you know, there is, seems to be, another problem which is about allocation of certain kinds of resources right within the theater command. for instance i have heard uh you know retired senior air force officers making what seems from their service perspective a fairly sort of clear point which is that as the sort of total number of strike assets of the air force is already on something of a downward curve right and we all know about the number of squadrons and where we are going to stand in a few years' time with all of that. Uh, in some ways, they believe that you know creating theater commands and dispersing these kinds of already somewhat ending out assets is not such a good idea. That in some ways, uh, and as you're saying, that is even beyond the problem of improperability and whether you know army or air force commanders as theater commanders will understand the role of the Air Force and vice versa as well. I mean, that, that, that question of jointness and interoperability, all of that is there. But even beyond that, there just seems to be a question about saying whether this is a good idea given where we are in the state of our military modernization and the kinds of strike capabilities that we currently have and the trajectory in which we see. You know, I can see how that's a cause for concern, but I'm not convinced that it should provide a justification for not creating a theater command. And I'm saying this for a couple of reasons. First, most of the militaries which are comparable to the size of the Indian armed forces have established theater commands based on the assumption that centralized command and control enhances effectiveness. If we are to be an exception to that, then we must very clearly explain what is our model of jointness. Second, as you well know, in India's case, we have respective service commands, which are neither co-located and oftentimes their areas of responsibility do not even align. This is not conducive to effectiveness, efficiency, as well as interoperability. 
Finally, even under the current circumstances, that is even without the creation of a theater command, the chief of air staff is supposed to assess the threat situation and switch, and accordingly, he can switch his forces from one theater to another. I think a similar step of uh, the ability to switch force from one theater to another, um, based on the emerging operational picture, can be undertaken even when you create a theater command. Um, but, and and on this aspect, uh, we are not extremely clear, would the theater commanders be responsible to the CDS or they, would they still function under the designated service headquarters? Which is to say, are we, are we, are we then um, expected to establish structures as they have done in Britain, just like the permanent joint headquarters, like the PJHQ uh, under the CDS, or will we have an entirely different Indian approach to this? Based on what we know, um, I have no clue on which way we are going. Yeah, sure. And I suppose, you know, at, at some point, may not be the immediate sort of you know, aftermath of creation of theater commands, but at some point, the logical sense would be to get the service chiefs to actually divest their operational role and focus more on preparation, training, recruitment, preparing before, right? And then leaving the actual operational bits to the theater commanders, uh, who in turn will then work through the uh, CDS, who of course will be advised by a you know tri service staff. I mean, it's not that you know the CDS is going to not have that kind of uh, uh, is uh, I completely agree. I think in terms of where we should be going, that makes the most sense, which is in the future, I mean, he should, uh, this person should be a chief of staff, right? Not just an operational um, boss, so as to speak. Um, but I don't see indications of that happening, right? Um, because if I was to see indications of that happening, then I would say that the CDS and the DMA and the and uh, the joint staff should then occupy the most crucial offices in South Block or of this new kind of headquarter or the new establishment. Uh, the day that happens, I would say that's a good sign for this PJHQ concept. But since that is not happening and there's a lack of clarity about operational ownership, I think we are muddling through this a little bit. Well, given that it's taken so long, I think it's preferable to muddle through rather than not have it to I'd say, as you're saying, you're welcome. Uh, Fair point. So just to sort of shift focus from what should happen in the long run to what perhaps is happening in the short run, even as we're speaking. Which is to say that, uh, you know, you pointed out right up front that one of the most significant constraints that we have, kind of a binding constraint on uh, modernization is the sort of state of defense financing and how much fiscal ability the government will have in order to be able to do this, you know, question of defense modernization. Now, there are two parts to this problem. The first, of course, is that, you know, Already, India was on something of a low growth trajectory before the coronavirus came along, and now it's going to be quite clear that you know we are going to see a, a significant economic contraction this year and a period of recovery, perhaps stretching to So clearly, the overall pie from which defense acquisitions have to come uh, is going to become somewhat smaller. The second is about saying that you know 
even within what is available you know it is now clear that capital acquisitions are getting a smaller share than current expenditure which is pay pensions and other kinds of liabilities so i just wonder given these two realities one which is that you know the existing pension liabilities etc cannot change uh, and that will put a sort of squeeze on the capital budget but at the same time the overall pie is also not going to be growing so dramatically that you know sort of weather that particular problem so how should we thinking about the priorities or events and mode now clearly this is the sort of question i would imagine that a cds should be uh, well positioned at least institutionally be able to tackle but if you were you know asking telling the cds to look for three things what are they um i think the problem and the question you just asked is the problem from hell right um uh, because you are absolutely right we are spending too much on manpower uh, we are spending too much um on just paying salaries and pensions so this problem should animate all of our senior um officials whether they're bureaucratic political or the military officials um so the three things i would suggest is firstly we need to rethink a reliance on a manpower intensive army it is simply un- it is simply unsustainable to have such a large army and then to expect that we'll have the funds to modernize them and so we have to take a harder look at the bare essential operational like the requirements and perhaps even reallocate and redeploy them for instance in a nuclear environment i think it is fair to ask um are we going to deploy strike corps operating deep within pakistan in a nuclear i mean environment is that a fair assumption um if the answer is highly unlikely then perhaps we should redeploy and reallocate the resources accordingly second i would say we we need to take a harder look at defense pensions right i mean it's um i saw a really interesting paper done at idsa uh, which basically analyze this issue and and then argue that from 2005 to 2020 the outlay for defense pensions has increased by almost 10 times uh the study then goes on to compares india's um uh, system of pensions with the uk and us and i think it makes some really interesting ideas on how to address this issue uh now again it, it's a complex issue so there's no simple solution uh but i also think it requires adequate attention because otherwise you will keep paying off pensions and salaries and uh paying off for manpower and not have enough for equipment and the third and i think perhaps the most important thing is we need to create conditions to facilitate a debate on these issues um just like and this is with due apologies to the post just like democracies die in darkness ideas cannot emerge without more information being available to researchers so for instance it will be nice to have a look at the shakat committee which was explicitly tasked to reduce the manpower in the military what ideas did they come up with how were these ideas implemented did they work as planned uh, why why not i mean um, i think it makes no sense um, that a committee that was explicitly tasked to look at manpower um, the ways to enhance combat effectiveness by decreasing the manpower is still not available in the public domain if there's something secret about it just redact the committee report let us look at these um we should be able to 
analyze the data and look at reports and come to our, our own conclusions. Ultimately, it is unrealistic to expect outside experts to come up with suggestions when they have very little research stuff to work with. Anit, one last question, um, which is that, you know, if, if we have to sort of think about a uh, roadmap or the kind of military we want, both in terms of organizational structures, in terms of capabilities, and in terms of, you know, what kinds of situations that it needs to train for, how it builds the kind of interoperability that you've been talking about. Uh, perhaps all of these things are best done uh, through a well-staffed and, you know, properly empowered chief of defense staff. Now, this is something that you have argued for many years, even before it actually came about. Uh, but, but do you think there is a danger that the chief of defense staff is also in some ways getting sucked into kind of, you know, here and now operational kind of questions. I mean, we saw, for instance, now I'd imagine that in a crisis like that, he would have to be involved. But, but do you think that uh, there is a danger that the office of the CDS might just end up spending more of its time in thinking about the here and now, rather than these kinds of root and branch reforms that you have been so persuasively arguing for, for many years now? Yes, I think I'm afraid so. Um, I'm not sure it is best for the CDS to involve uh, so prominently in this immediate crisis with China. He has to be in the picture, of course. But I think it is more important for him and the DMA to come up with a, with a vision, uh, like a document of some sort, a roadmap, if you will, of what the, what his priorities are and how he expects how he expects the interface with the various, like the departments in the MOD and the other services to evolve. As an author, um, you understand this well, right? Um, you understand that the act, that as soon as you start to write, it forces you to think clearly. Um, I think the CDS and the DMA and the staff officers therein should commit themselves to this um, to this punishment, so as to speak, uh, and come up with a vision document, right? Uh, and, that, and that can look at various issues. It need not just think about how to deal with other bureaucracies, but think about other... Uh, very important issues that are not getting adequate attention. For instance, professional education in the armed forces. For instance, the NDU. Um, I think the CDS and the staff officers are uh, are should should undertake an endeavor, and I think that would pay off. Um, unfortunately, in the absence of that, we only. We, we we intermittently hear of ideas emanating from the CDS and it and it appears as if they are enacting a policy by floating trial balloons. Um, it is not surprising, therefore, that absent such a document, we hear of the services jockeying um, and trying to protect their turf. But I think the concerns I have are not as much about this CDS, but also about his replacement and the one after that. Are we thinking of grooming the best officers from the three services and giving them the proper exposure to assume this post? How then should we select officers to staff the DMA, for instance? Uh, what about the intellectual exposure and career prospects in the respective services? Are we creating a career opportunity um, so that the best officers in Army, Air Force, and the Navy actually serve in joint appointments. And so ask yourself this question, 
how many service chiefs in the last 20 years have served in the integrated defense staff? Uh, as far as I know, approximate maybe two out of 20, which I think is somewhat indicative of the amount of emphasis that the services place in where they want to send their best officers, definitely not to the joint staff. So the CDS needs to think of a way to incentivize officers to serve at joint staff levels and say that, look, if you serve at joint staff levels, it is not a it, it will not harm your career in your services. In fact, it will be seen as, as a step up. Um, and so I would want to see more big picture idea ideas emanating from to CDS, uh, backed up by adequate staff work and impeccable logic. Well, I mean, I suppose the good thing is that at least things are on the move. And uh, let's hope that uh, powers that be do listen to people like you, thinking and writing about uh, Anit, uh, thanks for being on the podcast today. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you so much, Srinath. I really enjoyed speaking with you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.